thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. This week, we talked to the scientists growing new brain cells for people with Parkinson's disease and the man creating human organs in a test tube. Plus, evidence that antibiotics in pregnancy might affect the behaviour of a baby, why air travel is destined to become bumpier in the future, and is it true that it only takes one hit with heroin to get hooked? Hello, I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Penicillin has saved millions of lives since its antibacterial properties were first realised in patients more than 75 years ago. Now, literally thousands of tonnes of antibiotics like penicillin get used every year around the world. But could there be consequences for a developing baby's brain if its mother takes antibiotics during her pregnancy? New research from Canada carried out on mice suggests that taking antibiotics changes the spectrum of bugs in the mother's and subsequently the infant's intestines. This, John Bienenstock says, affects brain chemistry and the behaviour of the infant after it's born. We postulated an antibiotic might change the balance of bacteria in the gut. If we gave it in pregnancy and then we continued until the animals separated and were independent from their mothers, would there be a change in brain activity or behaviour? And the short answer is yes, animals became aggressive uh, quite unusually and uh, there were chemical changes in the brain. These are associated with changes in the bacteria in the gut. How do you know, though, that the differences you're seeing are not just a side effect of the antibiotic molecule? Well, what we did was to give another group that were receiving antibiotic and bacterium, commonly referred to as a probiotic, And when we did that, we found that there was a marked difference. The effects were not so uh, significant or uh, concerning in the brain and in terms of the behavior. And the changes that we saw in the bacteria in the gut, which were drastically altered by the antibiotic, were actually not seen. So we take this as demonstrating that the bacteria may well be uh, significantly involved in the causation of the uh, abnormalities. And if you look in the brains of the mice that you have treated in this way and seen these changes in behaviour, are there any obvious differences that would account for why they're behaving differently? Yes, and when we do, we find uh, particular uh, changes which are quite dramatic in the frontal cortex, which is part of the brain that actually tends to regulate emotions and reactions in that sense. And those changes are associated with a particular molecule, a receptor, which has been shown to be associated with aggression. So our thought is 
that those are in fact associated with these behavioural changes. And is this potentially then irreversible? Are the mice, once they're like this, are they locked into this altered behavioural state? We don't know the answer to that. It's a key question because obviously what we're talking about is uh, the difference between prevention and treatment. Uh, In addition, we don't know um, whether the uh, effects that we see are only related to pregnancy or whether, in fact, separating the experiments into two halves, one in which we treat animals with uh, antibiotic in pregnancy and another which treats only the pups and then looks uh, in the long term at offspring, which one of these is going to have that effect. We suspect that the results will be that the effect of the antibiotic is in pregnancy. And to what extent do you think, because this is a study in mice, isn't it, what extent do you think this is relevant to humans? It's the most important question. In North America, currently, the statistics show that uh, every child by the age of two has received at least one or two courses of antibiotic. That doesn't mean to say that the antibiotic isn't necessary. It's just a fact. We know very little about the incidence of psychiatric disease at least the risk for the development of psychiatric disease as a result of antibiotics. We do know that antibiotics are associated with several different clinical diseases such as inflammatory bowel disease, colon cancer, and also, interestingly enough, obesity. But we do not know whether antibiotics in pregnancy have any effect at all. So the epidemiological evidence will be sometime in the coming uh, to either prove or disprove the current results in mice. So certainly one to watch, isn't it? John Beanenstock, he's at McMaster University in Ontario and the study was published in Nature Communications this week. Now we've seen many recent extreme weather events from mudslides in Colombia to flooding in Australia, which scientists say are a consequence of climate change. But it's not just the weather that gets affected. The Earth's atmosphere is made up of several layers of air and they all flow around each other in patterns known as jet streams and an increase in temperature is going to cause those to speed up. Now this is very bad news for air passengers including the one million people who are currently airborne at this very instant up there above us because an increase in the speed of the jet stream will cause more turbulence and that's going to make flying less comfortable and potentially a lot more dangerous. Tom Crawford heard how it's happening from atmospheric scientist Paul Williams. We've been looking at turbulence over the Atlantic Ocean and specifically severe turbulence, uh, which is strong enough to hospitalise people and indeed it does cause many serious injuries every year. Um, What we've been interested in specifically is the impact that climate change might be having on severe turbulence. We can expect a 59% increase in light turbulence, 94% increase in moderate turbulence and 149% increase in severe turbulence and that of course means we're looking at twice or maybe even up to three times as much severe turbulence as there has been historically. So you gave us an example of severe turbulence sort of saying you know this can injure people but most of us will have only experienced I imagine probably light or moderate turbulence sort of the shaking feeling when your flight starts bobbing around a bit. So so what do you mean you know is there a turbulence scale? There is. Um, Scientists have developed a scale much in the same way that we have the Richter scale for measuring the strength of earthquakes, um, that we do have a scale for measuring the strength of turbulence. It doesn't have a name, um, but it's a seven-point scale in which one means light turbulence, three means moderate, five means severe, and seven means extreme. So just to put some definitions there, in light turbulence, 
which anyone virtually who's flown will have experienced. There's just a slight strain against the seatbelts. Certainly food service would be able to continue and people would be able to walk around the cabin without difficulty in light turbulence. Let's turn the notch up to moderate turbulence. Now there's a definite strain against seatbelts. Unsecured objects certainly being dislodged. Walking difficult. Flight attendants instructed to take their seats. And now let's move up to severe turbulence. This, by definition, is stronger than gravity. So passengers will be forced violently against their seatbelts. Food surface and walking are certainly impossible. And because it's stronger than gravity, any unbuckled passengers and crew will potentially be catapulted around inside the cabin. So it's this severe turbulence that really hospitalises people. And it's the, it's, the, it's the kind of turbulence that is not just an issue about comfort, but about safety. Okay, so we've talked a lot about turbulence and how it, you know, as you've said, it's going to increase in the in the atmosphere because of climate change. So how is that going to happen? How does turbulence form? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. What it all boils down to is something that meteorologists refer to as a wind shear. Um, And that's a complicated term, but it means something very simple, which is simply the fact that the higher up you go in the atmosphere, the windier it gets. So, for example, anyone who's ever climbed up the Eiffel Tower will know that when you're at ground level, it's usually not very windy. And by the time you're about halfway up, usually it's getting quite windy by that stage. But certainly by the time you reach the top of the Eiffel Tower, usually the wind is blowing very strongly. And that's a wind shear. And in fact, we know that this effect, the increase of wind speed with altitude takes place from ground level, not only up to the top of the Eiffel Tower, but beyond, all the way up to many kilometres, maybe 10 kilometres high to form the jet stream. And it's instabilities within those wind shears that generate turbulence. In simple terms, what climate change is doing is that it's not warming the atmosphere uniformly. The different parts of the atmosphere are warming by different amounts. And specifically, at 30 to 40,000 feet, where planes tend to have their cruising altitudes, the low-latitude tropical regions are warming more than the high-latitude Arctic regions. And so the temperature difference, the north-south temperature difference across the Atlantic Ocean, is becoming stronger because of climate change. And it's that temperature difference that drives the jet stream. And as it becomes stronger, the jet stream is becoming stronger, the wind shears are becoming stronger, and that's the physical mechanism by which climate change is driving stronger and more frequent turbulence. And just with everything we've discussed, it almost seems to me like this this could be the the first sort of real-life experience of climate change affecting people now. Yes, for some people, maybe focused in the developed world, this might be one of the most obvious um, early signs of climate change. Of course, that's not true for, for people in the developing world where the impacts are much more serious in many ways about um, heat stress and crop failure and flooding, etc., sea level rise. But for some people in the developed world, especially frequent flyers who, of course, make a contribution to climate change through aviation's emissions, this effect might be um, one of the early signs of climate change. And of course, for some people, it might even be the thing that pushes them into actually caring about climate change in the first place and maybe taking actions to minimise their carbon footprint. Sobering thought, isn't it? That was Dr Paul Williams from the University of Reading and his study was published in the journal Advances in Atmospheric Sciences. He was speaking with Tom Crawford. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, the nerve cells that tell fat cells to get fat. 
But first, it's that part of the show where we subject dubious sounding science to proper scrutiny. And this week's myth conception comes from Moira, who's been wondering whether it's really true that it takes only one hit of heroin to become hooked. Here with the answer is someone with first-hand experience. My name is Liam Farrell, and I am a morphine addict. Now, morphine is almost the same thing as heroin. Heroin being diamorphine, which breaks down into morphine in the body. But I'm also nine years clean. I'm not answering this question as an expert, just as an addict still in recovery. So I do have some perspective. Essentially, this myth is completely untrue. In medicine, heroin and other similar strong opiates are used regularly for pain relief, for which they are uniquely effective, and addiction is almost unknown. Even longer-term use, as in cancer pain, doesn't necessarily lead to addiction, although addiction to prescribed opiates has become a huge problem in the USA. 50 Americans die every day because of prescription opiate overdose, and it's now a more likely cause of death for middle-aged patients than road traffic accidents. So heroin has led many users to dependence and addiction. Although it's unlikely that you develop a full-blown addiction to heroin the first time you use it, that euphoric introductory experience can be the start of a compulsive cycle that leads to addiction. My memories are of a warm tidal wave washing all through my body, leaving a really pleasant languor afterwards. Heroin acts by activating the specialised opiate receptors in the brain, triggering a release of dopamine, the neurotransmitter that generates the feelings of pleasure. Unfortunately, the more frequently you use the drug, the more rapidly your brain adjusts to the chemical changes that it causes. And there are estimates that nearly one quarter of people who try heroin will become addicted. I used once every six months for a few years, with no problems, no withdrawal reaction, no cravings, before starting to take it more often. When I did start taking it a few times each week, I developed a physical addiction within a few weeks. And after that, not getting the drug leads to a horrible withdrawal reaction, which after all these years, my memories of withdrawal still give me a chill. So certainly, physical addiction takes a period of regular use to develop. Though it's possible that the seeds are sown from that first hit, when you actually cross that line of actually sticking a needle into yourself. To put it simply, if you never try heroin in the first place, you don't have to worry about becoming addicted to it. And thank you very much to Liam Farrell for that answer. Liam is a medical writer and he's also a former family doctor. The human population is growing and not just in terms of numbers. The World Health Organization estimate that nearly half of all adults are now overweight. So the discovery this week of a network of nerve fibres that seem to control when fat cells store energy and get fat is potentially huge news. Biochemist Goncalo Bernardes, who's based at Cambridge University, has engineered a toxin to remove these nerve cells. Mice given the toxin all became grossly obese despite eating a normal diet, and this suggests that manipulating these fat nerves might be a way to control weight. We first observed that uh, nerve cells are also present in the fat tissue. 
And this led to the question, what happens if we can uh, remove these nerve cells from the fat tissue? How would that influence obesity? Right, but how can you remove nerve cells just from fat? Because nerve cells are present in the skin, they're also present in the brain, they're everywhere. So how can you be selective? To do so, what we have done is to engineer a toxin in such a way that this toxin would not cross the blood-brain barrier and therefore would spare the nerve cells in the brain and selectively influence the nerve cells present in the fat tissue. And this is in mice? And this is in mice. So these are otherwise healthy mice and you've got a toxin now which selects for the nerve cells which are in the fat cells so you can remove those nerve cells and see how the fat in the animal changes. Exactly, independently of the food intake of these animals. So we gave our engineered toxin to a group of animals and we followed how these mice got fat or not. So what we observed with the, in the case of the engineered toxin is that the removal of the neurons from the fat tissue led to um, very obese mice independently of the amount of food intake. So compared to normal animals eating the same diet, these mice that now lacked the nerve cells in their fat tissue gained prodigious amounts of weight. Yes, that was exactly what we found, without having any brain damage. And do you understand why the mice had this preponderance to gain weight? So this study really points towards the direction that there is a crosstalk between the nerve cells in the fat tissue and how this is related to obesity. We don't know all the mechanistic aspects behind it, but that's something we consider very exciting, for sure. And do you think this could lead us to a clue as to how we can help people or animals not to become obese? We are using these findings to do exactly the reverse. Uh, And the reverse would be how we can stimulate nerve cells in the fat so that these mice, independently of their food intake, would not get obese. And are they relatively easy to stimulate these nerves? Is there a drug that you could administer that, that mimics the signals from the nerve cells into the fat cells to make this happen? Yes, there are drugs that have been used that can stimulate nerve cells. And these are the drugs that we are currently designing in a way that they can specifically stimulate the nerve cells in the fat while sparing the nerve cells in the brain. And do you think that in humans the same thing might be happening, or at least there might be a contribution from the nervous system leading to people gaining too much weight? I think you phrase it very well in the way that when we go from smaller organisms to higher organisms such as humans, there is always a a certain degree of complexity that is involved. What we are convinced is that there is a contribution from the nerve cells present in fat we can use to try to modulate in humans. Gonzalo Bernardes, and he published that work together with his colleagues in Portugal in the journal Nature Communications. Now, do you remember last year's big craze, the Mannequin Challenge? Or what about the Harlem Shake? Or maybe the Ice Bucket Challenge? Now, the chances are you probably recall at least one of them. And that's because they all went viral. Tom Crawford decided to find out if there's any science behind why things become popular like this, so he spoke to Jonah Berger, who's Professor of Marketing at the University of Pennsylvania and also the author of the book Contagious. We see things catch on all the time, and we might think it's random or it's luck or it's chance, 
But there's really a science there. Uh, it's driven in part by word of mouth, uh, what people share with one another. Uh, but also merely seeing others do something can lead us to do it and, and lead that things to catch on. It's not necessarily always the best things that went out or the cheapest ones or the ones that have the biggest advertising, but it's really the ones that fit with us, our underlying psychology, why we share things, why we imitate others, and those underlying steps. And uh, steps is a framework that stands for social currency, triggers, emotion, public, practical value, and stories. And each of those is a reason that drives people to share or why we imitate others and leads all sorts of things to catch on. You mentioned their steps and these sort of six factors. So I guess let's talk a little bit more about each of them. The first uh, part of the steps framework is the idea of social currency. And the simple point there is the better something makes us look, the more likely we are to, to share it with others. So, for example, there's a great uh, restaurant in New York City called Criff Dogs. It's a hot dog restaurant. Uh, but once you finish eating your wonderful hot dog, in the corner of the room is a phone booth. Uh, and if you walk inside, and you, there's a rotary dial phone on the inside. And if you stick your finger in one of the numbers and go around in a circle and hold the receiver up to your ear, the phone will actually ring. Uh, and they'll ask you if you have a reservation. Uh, and essentially, hidden inside this hot dog restaurant is a bar that you walk in through, through, through a phone booth. Never advertised. They're hugely successful. Uh, and if you think about why, the simple reason is it's a secret, right? And, and the first thing we do when someone tells us a secret is well, we tell someone else, right? Because it makes us look really good to know things that uh, make us look like insiders, make us look like smart, special, in the know. Uh, if you look online, for example, most things people share are positive. Look at me. I went on vacation. Look at me. I met a celebrity. Look at me. I, I got a new car. We don't really share, you know, hey, look at me. I'm, I'm at the office working on an Excel spreadsheet. Check out uh, column C. We share things that make us look smart. They make us look cool. They make us look interesting. They make us look like food or into sports. And so social currency is all about, well, the better something makes us look, the more likely we are to pass it on. Okay. And what about the other aspects of steps? So another idea is, is public. Uh, and the idea there is the easier something is to see, the easier it is to imitate. So we've been talking about word of mouth, the idea that sometimes people share things with others. But sometimes the mere fact that someone else is doing something makes us more likely to do it. We may see someone wearing a certain shirt, for example, or a certain car and be more likely to do the same. We've all heard that phrase, monkey see, monkey do. The notion that, well, monkeys do what, what other monkeys are doing. And that makes a lot of sense. But the see part is just as important as the do part. If one monkey can't see what another monkey's doing, they can't imitate it. We all, you know, if we've been to a foreign city, for example, and we're trying to figure where to go out to eat, we often use a time-tested trick. And that is, well, look for a place that's full. We assume if it's full, it must be pretty good, right? We're using others as a signal of information. They don't need to tell us that it's good. The mere fact that the restaurant's full, we use that as, a, as social proof, as information that it must be good. But notice we can only do that if we can see inside the restaurant. If we can't see it, we can't imitate it. Is that almost um, perhaps an evolutionary trait in humans to sort of follow the crowd? Think about how difficult it would be if we couldn't use others as, as a source of information. If every time we made a decision, we had to do it entirely independently of everyone else. If you moved to a new city, you had to find a car mechanic. You had to go by mechanic to mechanic to mechanic, ask them how good they were, uh, ask them how much it would cost, even give them a trial run to see if it was any good. Life would be impossible. Um, and so other people are a simple shortcut uh, that often make choice faster and, and easier. And so certainly there's an evolutionary advantage. It makes life better and easier to rely on others than simply relying on ourselves. And what about the, the thought that sometimes people want to be unique and want to be original and sort of differ from the crowd? 
It's a, a great question. Uh, and actually, my, my most recent book, Invisible Influence, talks exactly about this tension. On the one hand, uh, we want to be similar to others. Others is a signal that something is good, and we want to be a good member of the group. We want to fit in. Uh, if we're out to dinner, for example, and we want to order dessert, but no one else wants to order dessert, we probably skip it, mainly because we think people look at us funny if we're the only person at the table ordering dessert. So lots of time we go along with the crowd and jump on the bandwagon. At the same time, we also don't want to be exactly the same as everybody else, right? We've, we've all had that feeling where we wear a similar shirt to someone else at a party or event and we go, oh, God, we're dressed exactly the same. And we don't like it. Uh, we don't want to be exactly the same. Uh, and so we do, as, as you noted, have a drive for differentiation, a drive to be unique, to stand out. Um, and so these two things seem like they're opposing, right? The drive to be similar and fit in and the drive to be different uh, and stand out. But often we choose in ways that allow us to do both uh, at the same time or, or be what's called optimally distinct, right? We buy the same car but a different color, allowing us to signal that desired identity, right, to be part of a group, to signal something we want to communicate, but also to feel different so we can point out a way in which you're, we're unique and, and separate from everybody else. And, and just finally then, if somebody is trying to make something popular, what's your sort of top tip? Yeah, I think uh, – Again, when we want to make something popular, we think it's just luck, right? We, I think it's all about, you know, uh, getting uh, lightning in a bottle or something along the lines. But it's not. There's really a science there. And so I would say that one tip is understand why people do what they do. Don't think about the technology, hop on social media and think that's the key. The key is really the psychology. Why do people talk and share in the first place? If we understand that, if we understand how social influence works, uh, then we can get anything to catch on. We can craft more contagious content. We can build more successful products and ideas, and we can get our stuff to become more popular. Well, we'll bear that in mind in the Naked Scientist production office. That was Jonah Berger there, and he was speaking with Tom Crawford, and his new book, Invisible Influence, is out now. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. In the next half an hour or so, we're going to be discussing how scientists are now beginning to unlock the secrets of the way in which animals, including humans, turn from a single fertilised egg into a complex organism made from many tissues, and how we can use that understanding to make new cells to repair tissues which have been damaged by ageing or disease. Coming up, we'll hear from a scientist turning embryonic cells into new nerve cells to treat Parkinson's disease, and I'll also be talking to a researcher who can grow new miniature organs in a test tube so he can diagnose diseases and test drugs more safely. But first, with me is Catherine Brown. She's the executive editor of the journal Development. Catherine, this is not, though, a new field. It sounds like it's all cutting edge and something that's just been happening, but this goes back a long time in history. Yeah, it does. So developmental biology or embryology, as we used to call it, has been going on for well over a century. And the journal that I work with has been going for more than 60 years. And really what we're interested in is how do you go from that single fertilised egg or that small group of embryonic cells to a fully grown individual? How do the cells know what to turn into, whether they should become lung or heart or brain? How do they get to form the right shape so that your gut is a long tube and your lungs are well branched so you can get lots of air? And also, how do you do that all, all of the organs at the same time so that everything becomes the right size at the right time and both your legs are the same length? I mean, that's important. But why is it important for scientists to understand that process? So what's really important now, I think, is that because we've got some understanding of this, we can learn what goes wrong in diseases. So lots of developmental diseases, for example, that affect newborn babies. And we can also start to take either those embryonic cells 
out of an organism and into a dish and turn them into the right kinds of cells to be able to use for, for example, cell therapies in various diseases or to be able to try and look and understand what goes wrong in a disease so that we can try and fix it. Now, Catherine's going to stay with me through the programme and as we hear each of the examples of how this is being done, she'll be able to tell you why this matters. So Catherine's back shortly. But she mentioned there that we can use our understanding of how organs form in a foetus to help to repair damaged tissues in people with diseases and to see how this is actually happening. I went to meet neurologist Roger Barker. He's at the Cambridge Centre for Brain Repair and he's using human embryonic stem cells to develop a cell-based therapy for people with the movement disorder, Parkinson's disease. Cells for repairing brains can come from many different sources and actually it's one of the problems in the world at the moment is there are many clinics out there advertising uh, cell-based therapies for brain diseases amongst others where the origin of the cells is a little obscure and the science underpinning it is even more obscure. In our particular case, there are two main sources, I would say, for cells to repair the brain. One comes from spare embryos from IVF programs. So when the eggs fertilise, the egg obviously then divides. And when it's only a few cells old, forming an embryo, some of those embryos are then stored, and you can then turn those embryos into embryonic stem cell lines. And obviously the advantage of that is those cells, which ultimately give rise to a person, have the capacity to turn into any cell in the body. But that was where I was going to ask you the question, because an embryo could be any cell in the body, an embryonic stem cell, but you want a certain kind of brain cell. You're absolutely right. Now, in our particular case, we want to make them into nerve cells, so we have to learn the instructions to give that embryonic cell to turn into a nerve cell of the brain. That is something which has evolved over the last 20 years, I would say, as people have understood more specifically how the brain normally develops and therefore how you can instruct these cells to follow normal development. So typically what people do is they put chemical factors onto the cells, they put in these things called transcription factors, factors which are used by nature to activate a whole series of genes to produce particular products to push cells in directions that you want them to do. So we have a best guess at what nature's done already to direct ourselves down normal development to produce the cells which we want to then transplant ultimately into patients. You said there are two approaches, embryonic stem cells being one. What's the other? So the other one is a newer technique which has come about in the last 10 years from pioneering studies in Japan and these are called induced pluripotent stem cells. So the principle here is that you can take an adult cell, so classically you take a few skin cells, and then you can turn them back into something that looks like an embryonic stem cell. So you reprogram it back to its very origin. Those so-called iPS cells have the same potential as embryonic stem cells. They have less ethical baggage, if you like, attached to them because of their origin, but they are newer. So the science is a little bit lagging behind where we are with embryonic stem cells. And is that why you're going down the embryonic stem cell line route at the moment? That is the reason we're choosing embryonic stem cells, because they've been around for longer and our techniques work more robustly with those. Ultimately, iPS cells may be the preferred option. And one of the areas people are particularly attracted in is this so-called idea of using the patient's own cells to repair their own brain. Now, that is a very attractive idea. There are a number of problems with it. The first is the cost, because in order to make a personalised treatment for you, it would probably cost somewhere in the region of two or three million pounds currently. And the other key problem is, of course, you develop Parkinson's disease in the first place. So now I'm going to make some dopamine cells from your own cells, your own genetic background, which gave you Parkinson's in the first place. So there's a worry that you will now develop Parkinson's in the cells that I've put in to treat you for your Parkinson's disease. 
which means your rationale for using embryonic stem cells may be a sound one. Is that what's in the dish on the microscope here? Well, what we've actually got here is embryonic stem cells that have been partially differentiated. So in this particular image we can see here, they're not embryonic stem cells, they're cells which have now been moved into a neural precursor cell state. So essentially, are you fooling it into thinking it's in a developing embryo in the place where the brain would be surrounded by other brain cells but you're simulating that sort of chemical milieu and the cells are fooled into thinking they have to turn into something like that. That's exactly so. So you're trying to convince this cell that it wants to turn into a brain cell and then the next trick you're going to have to do is say well I don't want you just to turn into any old brain cell I want you to turn into a particular brain cell which in our case we want to turn them into dopamine cells. And you can do that? We can do that and we think that we can now generate reliably with this technique large numbers of dopamine cells of the type lost in Parkinson's disease. And when you say large numbers in a patient who has Parkinson's disease and you want to treat them how many cells are you going to need? Probably not many. So in Parkinson's disease, you actually lose a quarter of a million dopamine cells on each side of your brain, and that's what gives you the Parkinson's disease. So in theory, if you can replace a quarter of a million, which sounds like a lot, but in the context of 80 to 100 billion, which is what you have in your brain, that's not a lot. How do you get a cell into the brain? That's pretty easy. Essentially, in order to transplant them in, what we do is concentrate the cells into a little vial. They're then taken up into a specialised needle. And then in neurosurgery, they make a little hole through the skull. They locate where they need to implant the cells. And then they essentially put the needle in and put little droplets of cells along various tracks of where we need it. And what do the cells then do after you put them in? So once the cells are implanted, some of them will obviously die, but what the majority will do is that they will sit there and then they will slowly turn into what we want them to turn into, which is the dopamine cells. So they will take on the characteristics of a dopamine cell, they'll put out a process which then makes contact with the the patient's brain. The brain's own cells will make contact with it, and then it will slowly mature. And so one of the interesting aspects, if you like, is it will take a long time to see the maximum effects because this cell has to bed down, differentiate into its final type of cell and then integrate and mature. So in the case when we've used not embryonic stem cells but we've used fetal dopamine cells, it can take two, three, five years for those transplants to have the maximum effect. How do you know they're surviving? Because obviously you can't go back in that person's brain when they're alive and see what the cells are doing. So how do you follow them up? How do you know that what you just said is what is happening? Well, you could take a very simple approach and say Parkinson's disease is a progressive disease. People get worse as the years go by. So if they got better and continue to get better, the implication would be that the cells were doing what they were supposed to do. Now, we also are very fortunate in the case of Parkinson's disease because we have scans now that can look at chemicals in the brain. And these cells are obviously producing a thing called dopamine, and we can look at dopamine in the living brain. If our transplant survives and has the effect we expect, then obviously the dopamine levels will stabilise and then improve as your transplant matures. And finally, Roger, in terms of the effectiveness of this therapy, if you've got someone who's very disabled by Parkinson's, what sort of scale of difference does it make to their daily life if they were to go through this process? So these therapies have the potential not to cure Parkinson's but to dramatically change the natural history of treated Parkinson's. So if they work as well as we think, then in essence they should get rid of all of their need for medical therapy. In fact, when they work well, they transform people's lives pretty much back to normal. Exciting, isn't it? That's uh, Roger Barker. He's at the Cambridge Centre for 
brain repair. Still with me is Catherine Brown, the executive editor of the journal Development. So Catherine, what's your reaction when you hear this sort of thing? So I think Roger's work is really exciting. And the reason I think it's so promising is because of the way that he's done it in really trying to understand how the body made those cells in the first place so that when you try it in a dish, we're recapitulating that process and we can really make sure that we're making the right cells to put into the patient so hopefully they'll have the right effect. Um, Are there not risks with embryonic stem cells? Could you not end up with a cell that isn't a brain cell in your brain and that could be bad for you? I think it's always a risk and that's something that people are being very concerned about. The embryonic cells, they're young by nature and Parkinson's is a disease that tends to affect older people. And so one of the things that's a real challenge in the field, not just with Parkinson's but with other diseases, is to try and make those cells more mature and more like an old person's cells so that we can use those to treat these diseases. And we're making progress on that but it's not completely there in all cases. And one of the other things Roger alluded to was that you're making cells and putting them into a diseased environment. Something in that brain gave that person Parkinson's disease to start with. So there's an additional problem to surmount, which is we're putting cells back into an ideal, a non-ideal environment potentially. Absolutely. And that, again, is why some diseases are more likely to be amenable to these treatments than others. So in the case of Parkinson's, we know quite a lot about the genetics of the disease and we can hopefully be able to trigger this. And we've got some evidence that it works already. But there are only some diseases that this will work for. Thank you, Catherine. Catherine Brown, who's staying with us during the programme. Now, Roger uses embryonic stem cells for that work that we were just hearing about, but adult tissues also contain stem cells, and that means that under the right conditions, they too can be cultured and they'll turn into new miniature organs. We call these organoids, and they can be used to study how diseases happen and also what drugs might best benefit an individual patient. One of the pioneers of this approach is Hans Klevers from the Utrecht Institute in the Netherlands. An organoid is a very small version, an artificial version of a real organ grown in a dish, typically from stem cells. These organoids represent many aspects of the original organ from which they were taken. Now, why would you make one? Well, there's various reasons to make uh, organoids. One would be that you'd like to study an organ in great detail, which is, can be done in animals, uh, can be done in people, but it's very difficult. But it's much easier if you take some cells out of a human being and then culture them in the form of a mini-organ and study them with great care. Now, you make that sound very easy. I'm sure it's not. So what steps do you have to go through in order to take a bit of my tissue and make a a mini-intestine of mine, for example? Yeah, so the best example would probably be a mini-gut that we could make of your colon or of your small intestine. So we've learned about 10 years ago what the stem cells are and what they look like in the lining, the inner lining of your gut. Um, Stem cells are the cells that will repair or replace lost cells uh, that wear out, uh, or when you're sick, you lose them. Stem cells become active and they divide and they replace uh, the lost cells. So we've learned where they are. We then learned um, how to keep them active, uh, how to mimic the situation that that occurs in your gut, uh, mimic it in the Petri dish, uh, which means that we grow them in 3D in a gel. And we have to give them growth factors. What we grow is the lining of the intestine. So this is the the tissue that helps you digest food and take up the nutrients, uh, pump it into your blood and lymph vessels. Uh, We do not produce the muscle that surrounds the lining and actually helps peristalsis, helps to move the food through your intestinal tract. And also we don't have blood or lymph vessels. So in that sense, they are somewhat incomplete. 
But nonetheless, because there are lots of diseases that affect the lining of the intestine, being able to produce this in a dish means that you could then model what a disease does or how it works in a dish rather than having to go to the patient. Yeah, yeah. we call the lining the business end of the gut. That's where all the gut stuff happens. Many diseases are indeed associated with a, a complex set of functions that's uh, located there. And uh, often diseases are associated with uh, loss or changes of these functions. Yeah. So what sorts of things, once you've taken a sample of these stem cells and made an artificial mini gut lining in a dish, what sorts of things can you test on it? Yeah, probably the best example that I could give is is uh, an application where we use this to advise uh, doctors who treat cystic fibrosis patients. Cystic fibrosis is uh, is a simple disease; it always affects the same gene. The problem is that there are lots of different flavors of this disease, and only for the more common flavors is there a drug. These drugs are exceedingly expensive, up to half a million US dollars per year per patient, and it's very unpredictable for who they will or will not work. Now, what we found out is that you can actually test whether a drug works um, in a patient. That was known, but it's very expensive. You have to treat the patients for about a year to figure out if it's okay or not for that particular patient. But we could actually um, create an avatar of that patient, a mini gut. So we take a small rectal biopsy. It's a painless procedure. Grow it for one or two weeks uh, in a Petri dish, get maybe 50 or 100 small mini guts, expose these mini guts to the drugs and there is a a one-to-one black and white correlation between restoring the response with the drug in the Petri dish and then giving it to a patient and see a patient respond. Can you pull off the same trick with pretty much any organ in the body or are you confined to just studying the guts? Yeah, the gut was the first one that we tamed in the lab but since then we actually have come up with protocols for almost any internal organ, so lungs, uh, liver, stomach, prostate, ovary. In all cases, if we play around with the conditions a little bit, we can come up with conditions where these the stem cells from that particular organ will make a mini-organ in culture. The exceptions, we think, are going to be the heart, where we fear there is no real stem cell, and brains, where there's very little, if any, stem cell activity. Notwithstanding that, that means you can then produce miniature versions of those organs to do things like test drugs or test disease processes and give people predictions about the diseases. Exactly. And one other major field is actually we can do this with normal tissue, which was essentially impossible before we developed this technology. But we can actually more easily do it with the cancers that develop in those tissues. And there again, the promise is, and we're currently testing this, that one could grow a cancer, for instance, of the colon or the pancreas, side by side with the normal tissue from that same patient, expose the mini organs and the mini cancers to a variety of cancer drugs, and then score, much like what we do with cystic fibrosis, score the best cancer drug for that individual patient. Knowing that overall only probably a third of the patients benefit from their first chemotherapeutic treatment, but all of them will get the side effects. So we might be able to come up with much kinder chemotherapy regimes in future, Thanks to that work. That was Hans Clavers from Rotterdam. Uh, With me, Catherine Brown. 
those things are being used to understand processes and diseases and drug treatments, but they're not actually being used therapeutically, are they? No, not yet. And I think we're quite a long way from that. I mean, people have shown, in fact, um, in a mouse, taking Hans's mini gut example, that if you injure a mouse intestine and you put one of his mini guts into that intestine, it will engraft and it will restore some functions. But that's in a mouse and that's very early work. But that is some promise that we may be able to use that in a subset of cases to treat certain diseases. But what is the key difference between an, an adult stem cell and the embryonic stem cells that Roger was talking about? If adults have stem cells, why do we we need to ever use embryos? So there are various differences. I think the most important thing is that not all of our tissues have large populations of stem cells and we don't necessarily understand them very well. As Hans said, the heart, for example, as far as we can tell, the adult human heart doesn't have stem cells in it. The other big difference I think that's um, really important is that those adult stem cells can only become certain kinds of cells. So they're much more restricted in what you can do with them. Whereas an embryonic cell, because in normal life, it has to make everything. When you put it into a dish, it can also make everything. Thank you, Catherine. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. Well, so far we've discussed how development is used to repair defective organs and even to grow miniature versions of organs, as we were hearing from Hans there. But scientists can actually go one step further and create an entire working network of the human body just in the lab. And this is what Harvard's Dong Ingber is doing, and he's with us now. Hello, Don. Hello. Now, you're making famously organs on chips, so tell us what one of those is. Yes, organs on chips are sort of a minimal... Uh, model of a, a human organ. I think what's novel about what we do is that we're able to create tissue-tissue interfaces, which is what defines an organ. Usually there's a blood vessel uh, involved as well as the specific cell types of the lung or the gut or the kidney. And we use computer microchip manufacturing methods, and that's why we call them on chips, uh, to to create devices with hollow channels, less than a pencil lead wide, less than a millimeter wide, that have two channels with a membrane between. And we're able to culture the cells from the tissue and the cells from the blood vessel on opposite sides. And we could perfuse it with life-sustaining medium. If it's the lung, we could put air on top of the lung cells. And we could recreate the physical environment, breathing motions in the lung, peristaltic-like motions in the, in the gut, which we find are absolutely critical for function. Um, and, and we do this either with cells from, from uh, normal people or from p patients with diseases or with iPS cells, as you heard about earlier, induced pluripotent stem cells, uh, which we can induce to form specific organ types. And I think what's unique about our models is because we have a blood vessel, we could really begin to study how drugs are distributed to and from each organ, and we could link multiple organs by a common, the common blood vessel channel to create what's effectively a human body on chips. And so, we've created over 10 different organ chips, so we really have a pretty good representation at this point. So it's a bit like what Hans is doing with his organoids, except you're making a smaller representation, and rather than an isolated miniature gut, actually you've got an isolated miniature gut and a liver and other organs, and they can share a, a blood flow, if you like, which means you can then understand how these things would interact chemically and biochemically in the body. That's right, but there's more to it in that what's different is that we... Uh, we're inspired by nature. We're not trying to rebuild it precisely. So we put the cells in the right environment, give it the right physical environment, and let them 
undergo their own developmental process in our chips, just like they did in the embryo. So for example, when we put the lining of your gut uh, cells, the gut epithelial cells on our chips, and we give them flow and peristaltic-like motions, they spontaneously form the villi, the finger-like projections that you see in your gut when you put um, uh, the, the cells of your small airways, they spontaneously develop cilia and mucus and move the mucus at normal rates. And and it's really quite amazing to see that the cells are programmed to undergo their own developmental protocol if you give them the right physical microenvironment. The other thing about the blood vessel is that we could put circulating immune cells through these chips and therefore study inflammation, which is a major part of most diseases, if, if not all. And, and uh, that's something that's very hard to do with organoids or any of these other systems. So would you have then a dish which has got a miniature liver growing in it and you would have a channel connecting that to all of the other organs that you're modeling in their dishes. And so they share a common blood supply, if you like. So we don't have any dishes. There are no dishes. They, we have chips. The chips, as I said, have these little hollow channels. Each one is the size of a computer memory stick. They're optically clear, uh, made out of a flexible polymer so we can stretch it so that it could breathe, like I was saying. But you have very high-resolution real-time imaging. So you basically have a window window on molecular scale behaviors inside cells, inside tissues in an organ level context. We then connect, transfer the liquid from one blood vessel channel chip to another. So for example, we might have uh, a drug we put through the, the lumen of the gut chip, take the outflow of the blood vessel channel and move it to a liver chip and a kidney chip and a bone marrow chip and a blood brain barrier chip and a heart chip and so forth. And we can transfer back and forth and we could actually, using computational modeling, we could begin to predict how drugs are distributed throughout the body, uh, how drug level, how they're cleared, metabolized, and what's known in the in pharmaceutical industry as pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, which is you want to understand how to dose a drug, what concentration you should give to get it where you want, and then pharmacodynamics is the 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 efficacy and potency of a drug with the goal being you might be able to test drugs uh, on these chips and predict, extrapolate, if you like, results from the chips into how, what does to start in a clinical trial in humans. And I suppose at the moment, a lot of that work is being done in animals, which are not necessarily the best model in all cases for certain drugs to test. And therefore, if you have a more relevant way of modeling how these chemicals might behave, then that's got to be a good thing. It's exactly right. And uh, there are many examples where there are drugs that never had toxicity in animals and they went to the clinic and they had major toxicity and were pulled out. And there are companies now um, essentially, for example, we're able to uh, mimic pulmonary thrombosis on chips. And we see this with drugs that failed in clinical trials for that reason, where they never saw it in animals. Uh, we're also able to, um, you know, mimic very complex uh, diseases. Like we have a, uh, we, we make chips with cells from patients, human patients with COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, who are known to be very sensitive to exacerbation of disease by cigarette smoke. Then we developed a, a cigarette smoking robot, and it literally takes real cigarettes, puffs them, and the smoke goes into the chip. And we recapitulate the phenotype seen in patients 
yeah, they're much more sensitive to cigarette smoke in terms of inflammation and and injury compared to normal chips. And can you then look at knock-on effects beyond just the lung? Because that's the other interesting thing about smoking is that it doesn't just affect your lungs where the smoke goes. Every organ sees the chemical byproducts of smoking and therefore there are disease consequences for everything. So can you see that? We haven't looked at that yet, but we can measure metabolites of, of – we, we can easily do that by linking the chips together. Um, but we have certainly looked at the effects of drugs on multiple linked organs. We've done eight so far um, linked with you know one drug. And actually, it was nicotine, which is uh, – you get with cigarette smoke. So in a sense, we have looked at that. I haven't even thought about it that way. But, but we're looking at nicotine, which is one of the things that is absorbed and does affect uh, – you know the 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 functionality of of other organs, but that that is the idea. The other part of this is that you can imagine um, taking iPS cells that you heard earlier, these the stem, stem cells, cell, yeah. adult stem cells, from a, a group of patients who are genetically similar, and then developing a drug for that genetic subgroup, and then using that group for your a small clinical trial, which could greatly shortcut the whole process of drug development. Where now. They usually do large groups, fail, have to search for a subgroup, and if they're lucky, find it and do a small trial and then get approved. So uh, this really can turn drug development upside down. Well, thank you very much for joining us to talk about it. That was Don Ingbert from Harvard University. Uh, Still with me, Catherine Brown from the Journal Development. Catherine, what are your reactions to that? So I think, again, this is really future-looking work. And what's particularly exciting is that we can actually start to look at things in a systemic way, look at multiple organs together and try and figure out what happens when you take a drug, which is probably intended to act on one particular cell, what's happening to all those other cells and whether there might be negative consequences. And the other thing I think is really exciting is that we can do this with human cells because so much of what we've done in the past, both from developmental biology and also when we're looking at disease, is use animals as a proxy for this and being able to look at humans, both from both of those perspectives, I think is now really important and should really drive those fields forward. The one thing that Don didn't mention is uh, whether or not he can model the microbiome, because we've heard a slew of news stories in recent weeks to years about the role that the microbes that live in us and on us play in helping the body to develop things like the blood brain barrier and so on with this story about penicillin in pregnancy. So I suppose one one ought to consider also that there's a lot more to development than just growing cells in a dish. There's a three-dimensional environment. There's also a chemical environment and outside influences, like Don was saying, with stretching things and so on. Absolutely. And that's something that's really important and really up and coming in the developmental biology field at the moment is our understanding that if we stretch or compress or poke a tissue, that can actually change what happens to those cells. And similarly, those bacteria, we know they're sitting on your gut line and we know they're doing important things there. And we actually are beginning to understand they're not just doing important things in the adult, but they're doing important things in development in order to make your tissues what you need them to be. Now I'm going to put you horribly on the spot now, just with your horizon scanning editorial hat on. What do you think are going to be the really big things up and coming in your field, either this year or you know in the next couple of years or so? So as I've already said, I think the fact that we can use human cells to try and understand this is really exciting. I'm a developmental biologist and so one of the things I'm really interested in is what is it that makes humans different from other animals and one of the things that people are already starting to learn about but we're going to get much more in the next year or two is for example why is it that the human brain is so much more bigger and so much more complex than the mouse brain what makes it grow big, what makes it fold and what makes us able to do all the things we can do that other animals can't. 
Catherine, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Catherine Brown from the Journal Development. And thank you to our other contributors this week. And now it's time to finish with our question of the week. And Izzy Clark has been sounding out this inquiry from George. When watching a film or documentary, a falling bomb or a missile always has a descending sound or a whistle. Why is this? Does it mean that if the missile fell down a bottomless hole, the sound would go subsonic? From blockbusters to cartoons, we all recognise that descending missile whistle. But does it really happen in real life? Here's Professor Peter Main from King's College London to sound out George's question. Most of the missiles shown in documentaries or films refer to the Second World War. And for the typical height of those bombers, the falling missiles are accelerating, but not sufficiently to break the sound barrier. That means that, apart from a relatively gentle whoosh, they would not naturally make any sound. However, it was in the interests of the bombers to terrify those under attack, so often an artificial whistle was incorporated into the missile. You heard right, they added a fake whistle. But what does that mean for missiles that travel in this hypothetical endless hole? If the missile could fall under gravity further, accelerating all the time, after falling about 5,000 metres it would reach the speed of sound and would then emit a sonic boom, just as supersonic aircraft do when they fly at speeds greater than the speed of sound. This happens when objects travel faster than 343 metres per second. The air molecules are pushed aside with such a great force that it forms a shockwave. It sounds a bit like a thunderclap. So how does the missile sound relative to the pilot? In principle, if the pilot of the plane could have heard the whistle, he would have heard it in the way described as a high-pitched sound falling in frequency according to the well-known Doppler effect. This is the same effect as when, say, a police siren changes pitch as it approaches and then passes by and is due to the motion of the object compressing the wavelength of the sound as it approaches the observer, that is increasing its pitch, and stretching it as it moves away. Someone on the ground would actually hear the pitch increase. In other words, it sounds higher and higher as it approaches. So that means those beloved filmmakers are using the wrong sound. Well, that's because the sound has nothing to do with bombs or missiles. It's a special effect created in the studio. The particular sound with the frequency of the whistle falling has become a cinematic convention, which explains its common use in many films. Well, thanks for clearing that up, Peter. Next time, we'll be answering David's colourful conundrum. While walking my dog in the evenings during the holiday season this year, I noticed I was unable to focus on and clearly resolve the dark blue LEDs in Christmas tree lights, or fairy lights. For all the other colours, I could resolve the shape and even the texture of the individual light bulbs. But with these deep royal blue LEDs, all I could see was a hazy blur. Why is that? And if you can shed some light on that phenomenon for us, then do email me. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also find us on Facebook. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or also you can join in the debate on our forum. That's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Now that is it for this week. A very big thank you to Tom Crawford who helped put the programme together. And do join us next week when we'll be asking, would you get your genes sequenced? We're investigating the good, the bad and the ugly side of genetic testing. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Until next time, from us here at The Naked Scientist, goodbye. Hold up. 
thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.